0: If we were just uh, beginning to be interested in uh, meditation or developing a spiritual life, and we went online to look for guidance, uh, or a bookstore to look for guidance, we would be totally overwhelmed overwhelmed with uh, the proliferation of um, teachings and techniques and uh, teachers of different traditions, and it could be quite bewildering, and you could wander around for a long time before you found really what um, suited you or what was effective. Uh, but it's uh, inevitable that we all, you know, kind of try the smorgasbord of spiritual delights, and then hopefully we'll find something to um, make a meal of. And even within the uh, Buddhist tradition of teachings, there are you know major divisions between the Theravada, Vipassana, mindfulness teaching and teachers, and the Tibetan traditions, many different Tibetan traditions, and then the Zen traditions of different countries. So even among just Buddhist teachings, there's a lot of um, variety, wide range of options. But interestingly, you know, as the teachings of the Buddha uh, spread from India, where the Buddha lived, north to Tibet and China, and then into the Southeast Asia, uh, Korea, Japan, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, Burma. Even into Indonesia at one time and Sri Lanka. Wherever the teachings of the Buddha went, they uh, met or they were met by the local uh, prevailing uh, indigenous cultures or religion or spiritual traditions at that time. And so we have what appears to be a huge difference between a Burmese Sayadaw, a Thai Ajahn. a a Japanese Zen master, and a Tibetan Lama. But, interestingly, Zen, Tantra, and Jhana, or Achan, all come from the same word. So we know that there's some commonality among all the different Buddhist uh, teachings. And there's at least one, one that I know of, Uh, teaching which is the foundation for, uh, or I should say, the essential bedrock of Dharma teachings that all of the different traditions uh, subscribe to or uh, base their teachings upon. And that is the the teachings of the Buddha's first discourse after his awakening that set the wheel of the Dharma in motion uh, among humans on the... Face of the earth, and that is a teaching on the four noble truths. So it can be helpful to look at the deepest roots of what we're doing here. You know, what we're doing sometimes, you know, with our uh, achy body and restless mind, can seem very far away from, you know, the kind of rare air of some of the dharma teachings that we have been exposed to or can certainly find available online or in bookstores, books and bookstores. So I want to speak about the Four Noble Truths tonight as a way of uh, contextualizing what it is we're doing here and what the relevance of the Buddha's teachings has for us in our practice and how our practice here, experiences here, actually confirms, begins to confirm some degree, what the Buddha taught, because it can be a powerful support for our faith, our confidence, our willingness to make the effort to face the inevitable challenges in, in practice, and uh, to 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 get the bigger picture of what it is we're doing. The Buddha, of course, was asked many many questions. Just like spiritual seekers today, ask many, many questions. You know, how can we really care for our soul? Are there such a thing as angels? What happens to someone when they get fully enlightened? Uh, and is being gratefully dead a worthy spiritual goal? <laughs> so, the Buddha, <laughs> the Buddha, when asked those questions, he refused to answer, because he said. Even if I could give you the answer, it wouldn't serve you. It doesn't bring knowledge to your mind. It's just an opinion. It's just an answer. It's just uh, somebody else's views and opinions that you're getting. And he said, uh, such answers or such questions don't lead to the holy life. He He said... It is unbeneficial. It doesn't belong to the fundamentals of the holy life. It doesn't lead to disenchantment. It doesn't lead to distraction. It doesn't lead to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment. It doesn't lead to nirvana, to know the answers to the kinds of kind of metaphysical, speculative, spiritual questions that we might start our spiritual journey with. But then he went on to say that I teach one thing only, Dukkha, the truth of Dukkha and the end of Dukkha. So if you know what Dukkha is, you'll know what the end of Dukkha is, and that's what the Buddha teaches. So it's interesting to remember that the Buddha called this teachings the Four Noble Truths. He didn't say, it's my four good ideas. <laughs> It's what he observed through the power of his own collected mind. You know, and if we, have, if we understand any of the history of the Bodhisattva's journey to awakening, we can understand that he really had to spend a considerable amount of time in very difficult and challenging situations to develop the paramis, including the wisdom to understand, to be able to look at this mind and, well, figure it out, so to speak. Now, can you imagine... sit down with your mind, pay close attention, and stop suffering. (laughs) It seems like the more we pay attention, the more suffering we see. So, there's something to be looked at here. So, when, after the Buddha's awakening, to the truth. Now, the truth is the truth. The way things are is the way things are. You know, as I mentioned last night, nobody, no human invented the law of gravity, but because of the power of observation, others were able to gather the information, put it together in a coherent way, and understand, point to, for our benefit, the natural law of gravity. Well, this is what the Buddha did. He looked at the mind, he understood the, the, the nature of the mind, the entanglements of the mind, the cause of suffering in the mind, and the end of suffering in the mind. And it's because he observed it this way, he then articulated it. These truths have always been the truth. But until there is a Buddha awake in the world to realize the truth and to articulate it for others' benefit, it goes unnoticed, unacknowledged. But the truth is always the truth. The way things are is always the way things are. So whether there's a Buddha in the world or not, the four noble truths are still the four noble truths. It's a Buddha though that can speak this truth so that others can get the benefit of it. So, first noble truth, dukkha sacca which means the truth of dukkha. Dukkha has um, a very, a quite elaborate, extensive meaning. But when I first started practice 40 years ago. I think it was translated, you know, life is suffering. And you'll still see see some um, maybe uninformed commentators say, oh, the first one, the truth is, life is suffering. And of course that's not what the Buddha said at all. But when I heard that, I was 26, and I was doing my first retreat, sitting up back, leaning against the piano, my body was in screeching agony, and... You know, my mind wasn't much better and I didn't know what the heck I was doing there. You know, but when I heard life is suffering, I thought, what are they talking about? I'm not suffering. You know, I just thought, well, this is, that's kind of a, that's kind of a, an exaggeration. And it wasn't until I went to Burma ten years later and ordained and heard one of Pandita's translators uh, say that the truth of dukkha is or d- describe Dukkha as r- pointing to the oppressive nature of phenomena. I, that's easy to get. You know, when it's hot and you're sweating and you can't cool off, that's oppressive. <laughs> if you've got mosquitoes buzzing around you, that's oppressive. It's easy to understand oppression. What I realized when I got it, and when I began to open to this truth of Dukkha, and, and what Dukkha meant, I began to see, wow, you know, I I thought when I first heard the word dukkha and suffering that if I was suffering, I was a failure. Somehow I was inadequate, incompetent, just a failure at life, and that was too that was too much for me to accept. I just I couldn't open to that possibility. Now I know it's true, <laughs> but but it's okay. So this is one of the this is one of the challenges of. Hearing, you know, the, the four noble truths is we personalize this dukkha. When we personalize dukkha to my suffering, my pain, my, we miss the most significant element of the Buddhist teaching. It's universal. Okay. So what does dukkha mean? Well, initially, and maybe the most obvious and most common understanding of the word dukkha is it means pain. There's the obvious physical pain of you know aches and pains in the body, and slamming your finger in the car door, and you know when we're sick. Uh, you know it's it's painful to carry around or you know feel the discomfort in the body, and just growing up um, is painful, and growing old is, is painful, and there's pain in the body. You know just to sit, just to sit still and pay attention shows up pain in the body. Okay. Pretty obvious. There's obvious mental pain, the feeling of uh, being afraid, alone, alienated, discriminated against, uh, dismissed, uh, disrespected, along with all of the defilements that we've been familiar with frustration, disappointment, fear, depression, unsatisfied um, desire. It's just, the list is endless. And there isn't any of us that hasn't experienced a lot of all of them. Pretty obvious, isn't it? It's obvious that we experience pain, physical pain and emotional pain. And there isn't anybody exempt. This pain is so obvious it's called dukkha-dukkha, just so you get it. Still, when we feel our own physical and mental pain. It feels like my pain. And even though we can see that others experience similar conditions, somehow the universality of it is lost on us. There's a second meaning, or second experience, that the word dukkha refers to. And it refers to, and it rests on the understanding that all things change. So here we are, healthy enough to be here on retreat, with enough discretionary time, and enough discretionary income, and enough intelligence to hear what's being said, to practice. And we have constructed our lives in such a way to have jobs, and homes, and families, and (coughs) careers, and neighbors and friendships to support us in our life. And life's pretty good. Right? Life's pretty good. It can all change very, very quickly. As we saw uh, three or so, three or four years ago in northern Japan, community, much just like ours, living on the shore of the uh, island where the earthquake went and the tsunami went And at the end of the day, everything that this whole community had put together for their security and their uh, safety and their home and their neighborhoods and their jobs and careers and everything destroyed. The security that they felt with their homes, jobs, relationships, whatever, wiped out. Now you might ask, you might just consider, If that had happened to you, and however, whatever the tsunami is in your life, or could be in your life, who would you want to see? You know, when the tide receded and you looked around at the devastation of your life and everyone else's life, who would you want to see? Who would you want to meet? Clearly, you'd want to meet someone who was kind, understanding, compassionate, wise, generous, patient, Grounded, perceptive, responsive. These are the qualities we're developing here. And each one of us has, though we don't know when or how or where, each one of us has a tsunami headed towards us. Any one of us could go get a diagnosis the next time we visit the doctor. Uh, we're going we're to try to drive home or fly home at the end of the retreat. Let's hope we all make it. Life is unpredictable. Things change, not due to fault. No, nobody's to blame. It's just conditions change, and our whole life, everything about our life and our security, is vulnerable, and it always—it's always vulnerable. And no matter how we, how much we do to, kind of ensure our life. We can't. And we know that. Just on the periphery of our vision, of what we deal with daily, there is this looming what-if. And, of course, you can't, you can't fix it. You can't, you can't escape it, really. Because there's always this what-if. And we know that. And so we live with this vulnerability. We live with this insecurity. We live with this what-if all the time. It's not ever-present. We're not looking at it like, oh my God, and, and feeling overwhelmed by it all the time. But it hovers right there. And so, no wonder we're afraid. No wonder we're insecure. No wonder we're, you know, scrambling, struggling, you know, doing whatever we can to try to keep it together. Keep our health together, keep our relationships together, keep our finances together, keep our homes together, our cars running, whatever whatever and vote for the right people. Okay. I mean, as if they could do it for us. Okay. Well, when we see that this experience of this kind of insecurity is dukkha. That's that's also dukkha. It's not that the pleasant security, the pleasantness that we experience now, the security that we do experience now, the health that we enjoy, the careers that are providing for us, the bank, money in the bank account and credit cards that aren't overloaded and whatever. It's like, hey, that that's good. Th- th- this is pleasant. These are pleasant conditions. Pleasant physical, mental, emotional, social, psychological, pleasant experiences. We're not saying they're painful. We're not saying they're oppressive. We're just saying... They don't last. They're not reliable. And that's what dukkha means. This is unreliable. So all things change. So when we say, oh, dukkha, we say dukkha is hidden in pleasant experiences. Because you can't. You don't see it in pleasant. When it's pleasant, it's pleasant. But it doesn't last. And it's unpredictable how long it will stay. Now, again, when I first heard this, I thought, well, when I first dropped it, you know, insecurity, I thought it was my insecurity. I thought it was personal to me. It's like, I haven't got my act together. (laughs) I didn't have a career. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a very reliable car. You know, I was just, you know, I was a hippie living in a commune and out of my pocket. You know, how how, how can you feel secure with that? But, you know, I, I had in my mind that there was a way... I had a belief that if I could just get my act together, then I'd be secure. So again, we miss the significance of what the Buddha's pointing to by personalizing the teachings. Okay. Is that enough? No. There's actually a third experience of the word dukkha to reveal, and it's a little more uh, obvious and a little more subtle, also at the same time. And there's two versions of it there's the macro version and the micro version. And the macro version says, We're born. Okay, and then our parents and other primary caregivers, doing the best they can, try to feed us, bathe us, groom us, cuddle us, coo us, keep us warm, poop us. Wipe us, you know, and just, they, you know, they do everything they can to keep us happy, because if we're not happy, they're not going to be happy. Right? And it's a full time job, and we're totally vulnerable to their care. And they do the best they can, you know, for the most part. And, you know, as soon as they can, they start handing us off to relatives, you know, aunts and uncles, and, and brothers and sisters, and you know, neighbors and teachers and anybody that anybody that can help carry the load of taking care of this little bundle of who we all who we all were and are. At some point, we get the message. You know, somewhere in our, maybe in our early teenage years, we get the message: you're on your own now. You got to take care of yourself, and. You know, while you're thinking about taking care of yourself, plan on eating every day. Now, to eat, of course, to get the food, you need to have some money, and to get the money, you've got to have a job, and to get the job, you've got to have an education. So you do, you know, 12, 16, 20 years of schooling, there's some dukkha. And then you get a job that is not secure. Okay. Well, assuming you get some money, then... You know, at the end of your work day, you got to go to the grocery store, right when everybody else is going to the grocery store to get your food, get your food for dinner. And you go in the grocery store and you push this little cart up and down the aisle, picking out the things you want. Then you wait in line at the checkout to check out. And then you put it all out in the car, load up your car, drive home, take it all out of the car, take it into the house, spread it out on the counter, unwrap it all, put it all in the cupboards and refrigerators and down in the freezer and all that stuff. Do that. Go into the living room, sit down, have a drink. Whew. Okay, 15 minutes later, you get up, take off the stuff out of the cupboard and refrigerate <laughs> Spend half hour, 45 minutes, an hour, cooking up dinner for yourself and others in the household. Making a huge mess in the meantime. Sit down, and in 10 minutes it's gone. <laughs> and, and you got to spend the next half hour cleaning up. Taking the garbage out, doing the composting, uh, putting the dishes in the dishwasher, running that machine, and going to the toilet. And you gotta do this two or three times a day, every day. And you've got to take care of this body. That's just to feed the body. We also have to groom the body. We have to get up, we have to look in the mirror and deal with what we see. <laughs> and, and, and we've got to bathe this body every day. And we've got to groom the hair and the nails and we gotta we've gotta got have clothes. You think food's a purchase? Wow. Clothes, same thing. Gotta pick your clothes, gotta have the right clothes. And you know, gotta keep up. It's exhausting just talking about it. Okay, so you know because you know if we don't take, hey, just think you got to brush your teeth every day at least once, maybe twice. Just think you don't don't brush your teeth, you're gonna have some dukkha. <laughs> don't bathe, you'll really have some dukkha. So you have to take care of the body, and you can't get anybody to do it for you, right? Who are you gonna get to take care of your body for? You, you know, we try. You know, they fail miserably. We do the best we can. The body's the easy part. We also got this mind. Now you've got to take care of your mind. And you know, and you, know you have to keep this mind entertained. You've got to keep it stimulated. You've got to keep it uh, fascinated. You've got to keep it distracted. Because if you don't, and it's just doing nothing, it's like being on retreat your whole life. <laughs> that, that's dukkha. That's do- that's do- right? I mean, I'm not kidding. Get it, right? Okay. So you gotta take care of this mind. And we we enlist all kinds of help trying to take care of this mind. You know, partners and neighbors and friends and employers, and employees, anything, any anybody. Keep me busy, keep me entertained, keep me distracted because I can't stand my own mind. Now, we got this body and mind. We we got the picture. We gotta do it every day. Four, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, or more decades, every day. At the end of which, what happens? Your friends go through your closet, pick out the best-looking clothes they (laughs) can. Someone close to you goes and buys a nice box, and they put you in it. And they either put you in the fire, or they put you in a hole in the ground, and it's goodbye. Now, some would say, that was a bad investment. <laughs> we don't have any choice. We have to do that. Right? That's oppressive. When you get the picture, you just say, wow, this is oppressive. You know, And we don't have any choice. We have to do that. <coughs> What's the other option? <laughs> There's no other option. There's no option. That's it. You have to do it. Of course, let me just give you a, a footnote here. If all we're doing is carrying this body and mind as comfortably and as pleasantly as we can to the grave, we're wasting our time. Just absolutely just wasting a good human life. Because there's so much more that we can do with this human life. Especially if we recognize this about ourselves, we know it about everyone else. And whatever we can do to help others Carry the burden of their life, whatever service, whatever kindness, whatever generosity, whatever knowledge, whatever whatever humanity we can show to one another. That's the, that's that's of more value than whatever else we do, really, because we're all in the same boat, and we know every every one of us is in this boat. Okay, so there is a lot we can do with our human life to make the the best use of it, to really get the benefit for ourselves and others out of what we can do with this human life. That was the first the macro view. The micro view is we have these six sense doors, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. They are constantly stimulated. Constantly they are impacted by... Sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touch sensations, and thoughts. And you can't stop it. <laughs> you can't shut it off. You, you can close your eyes, you still see visions. You can close your ears and you still hear at least the sound of your nervous system and the blood circulating in the, in the body. Even if you're in one of these s- tanks, sensory deprivation tanks. You still hear it. And your mind, you, you know you can't shut the sensations off in the body, and you can't shut off the mind. And it is being constantly stimulated. It's very hard to find relief from all the stimulation. We make the best of it as we can. We try to make it pleasant. We try to do all kinds of things. We do a lot of self-medicating to try to keep it at bay, just to kind of be able to tolerate it. From one perspective, from the perspective of awareness... And being fully out of denial of what's going on in this in this body and mind, we can see that is also oppressive. Just having twenty-four-seven, from birth to death, constant stimulation. That's dukkha. Again, you know, it's easy to look around the world. And see all the beautiful people, whether they're wealthy, or whether they have power, or whether they live in Hawaii, <laughs> or they live, you know, wherever you think is a great place to live. And we think, oh, they got it, they got it they got it made. They have the same body. They have the same sense of situation. Everybody experiences dukkha. It doesn't matter that you have money. It doesn't matter that you now have really good health. It doesn't matter that you're famous. It doesn't matter we still have this extraordinary burden of this mind and body to care for. It's hard to open to the truth of Dukkha. Because we can see, what can you, what can you do about it? Right, And it, it, it can be overwhelming. We, you know, when we first opened it, we get, we get a glimpse of, wow. It's just like, how can you deal with it? I mean, we do. We, 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 we manage somehow. But how do you deal with this condition? So... Let see, where am I here? Sorry. Oh, right. You know, I grew up in northern, or central Maine in, in New England, And my parents were of the time and age where they would say, look, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. You think we spoke about dukkha in our house? (laughs) Never. It was always a brighter future. Get your education, get the... It was always just, you know, expanding beautifulness. I am so thankful, I am so grateful, I am just so appreciative that my early Dharma teachers had the courage to speak about dukkha. To bring dukkha out of the closet and say, take a look, this is, this is the way it is. Because once we come out of denial, once we come out of uh, the confusion, once we come out of the hallucination that you know everything is beautiful, we can actually deal with it. If we don't know that we're suffering, we won't do anything about it. It's only when we know, we see, we get it. Nobody's got to convince us. If you if you pay attention to your life, you'll see. Okay. So it is said that practice, dharma practice, is to investigate the first noble truth. And we have to investigate it because it's so obvious, but we don't see it. Until we hear... This right view. We hear this right view. Dukkha Satya. Then if we practice, we'll see it. We'll confirm for ourselves. So it, it is to discover this truth within ourselves, within our own experience. Now we might think, hey, why should I practice? When I practice, I just discover Dukkha. Yeah, but when you discover suffering, the only way to soothe soothe suffering is with compassion. So actually, the kind of practice we're doing here is total self-compassion. Because we are discovering and dealing with the pain, the suffering in our lives in the most effective way. At least coming out of denial. And then training the mind so that we can begin to recognize, handle it, deal with it. Sometimes it's not so obvious that this is the path of compassion, but it's, once you once you see how to address your own dukkha, it's important. Now I have a question for you. I know the answer. But do you? Do you experience any dukkha? <laughs> Pretty obvious, I know. Did you ever ask yourself why? Why? Why do we have to do that? But the Buddha, Buddha in his awakening, also asked that question. Here's this truth of dukkha. Why? And as he looked further into his understanding of the nature of things, he saw that dukkha is caused by craving, or holding on, or desire. Desire and aversion meaning the same thing. Desire is wanting, aversion is not wanting, but it's still wanting. So, it's because of wanting. Now, of course, we're not wanting dukkha. We want happiness. We want pleasure. We want abundance. Now, for a long time I had this assumption, and let me just check and see if you've seen this little assumption in your mind. If I could just get what I want, then I'd be happy. Mm-hmm. Right? If I could just get what I want, then I'd be happy. That—that's—that That is so commonsensical. Right? I mean, to not have that assumption is like, what's wrong with us? Well, we do have that assumption. So, the Buddha said... That's true. If you want something and you can't get it, that's obvious suffering, right? Something you need and want, you want it, you can't get it, suffering. But the Buddha said, if you want something and get it, that's also suffering. What he know that we don't know. <laughs> okay? So imagine whatever it is you want, you get. You've you've worked hard to get the money for it, or worked hard politically to get the power for it, or you work, however, to get what you want. If it's alive, if it's anything that's alive, it is vulnerable to sickness, aging, and death at any time. Right? If it's valuable, you have to insure it, the government will tax it, and it's possible liable to being stolen. Right? If it's digital, it'll be outdated in six months. <coughs> And so on and so forth. It's just, if it's made out of metal, it's going to rust. If it's made out of wood, it's going to turn and whatever. The weather is going to take care of it. It's like, to get what you want, even the government you want, the economy you want, the job you want. Hey, we even bring it into our spiritual practice. What did you want today? A good sitting? You know what they say, nothing like a good sitting to ruin the rest of your day. <laughs> because we think this is the way it's going to be. It's not. But you can see how pervasive desire and wanting is as the antidote for you know not being satisfied yet, being a little dissatisfied, you know, not happy yet with the way things are, not yet content, not yet fulfilled. And so we want. We want, we want, we want. Mostly, you know, we want pleasant experiences. We want pleasant Physical experiences: we want pleasant sights, sounds, food. We want pleasant emotions. We want pleasant relationships. We just want everything to be pleasant because unpleasantness—that's dukkha. That's <laughs> dukkha. So we want things to be pleasant, and we do everything we can to be pleasant. Right? I'm not the only one, I know. Okay. So the Buddha said, "Yes, we want pleasant experiences, all sense doors, please." But he said, "We also want and we crave continued existence." Now, don't, 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 don't get too flipped out by that. What that means is, did you have any planning mind today? Did you have mm-hmm. planning mind today? Yeah, probably at least one plan about something in the future. What is that? What is that planning about the future? Planning about the future is planting seeds in your mind of what you want in the future. As you if you continue to live that long. You know, and then and then, if you're not careful, you'll have to live your life in order to secure it, to get it. Because when you plant seeds of desire in the mind, they don't just go away. They are in there as a possibility. In fact, coming to this retreat was one of those seeds that you planted a long time ago, you know, looking for some kind of benefit. So here you are. You getting the benefit? Or are we making plans for other futures? Okay, this is what we've done for a long time. Made plans for this future, and while we're living this future, we're making plans for the next future. And if we had to live out all the futures we have imagined for ourselves, we would have to be reborn hundreds of times to live them all out. During which, we would be making plans for hundreds of other lifetimes. This, the Buddha said, is samsara. We keep looking for future uh, for happiness out there. In some imagined future, we're looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Oh, that's samsara. That is wandering around. So, the Buddha said, not only do we crave continued existence, but we also crave and want the end of existence. Or we want the... Uh, non-existence. We want the end of dukkha. So somewhere today probably had difficult body sensations, difficult mental states, and we're just sitting there and going, I wish this was over. I wish this would end. (laughs) I'd like to get rid of this. I'd like to get rid of this experience of life. We can crave anything. And we do Recent studies show that what we think will make us happy doesn't make us as happy as we think it will. What we fear or imagine will make us unhappy doesn't make us as unhappy as we fear. Studies of lottery winners and those who experience catastrophic illness or calamity has also revealed that one year after winning a lottery or experiencing a calamity or a health crisis... The baseline happiness of such individuals is the same as it was before winning the lottery or, after, or before the health crisis. So we think, I'll win the lottery. Or oh, what if I get sick? What if I get some major? Yeah. A year after the event, back to normal. Baseline happiness, unchanged. We can only conclude that we really don't know what will make us happy. And our idea of happiness is independent of conditions. And so happiness is not really dependent on what we have or what we do, but rather on our own mind's relationship to the way things are. Our attitude of mind towards life. So it's said that the first noble truth is to be investigated because it's so opaque, it's so hidden. The second noble truth of craving, attachment, desire is to be abandoned. Okay, So here's the Buddha. Here's the Buddha giving his first discourse on the two noble truths. There's the truth of Dukkha caused by craving. Good luck. If, if that's all we were left with, we'd be... Luckily, the Buddha hung around for the third noble truth to make itself known, and he realized, oh, there is the end of dukkha. There's the end of craving, and there is the end of dukkha. And usually, when you hear about the third noble truth, it's, they talk about, oh, nibbana, enlightenment, freedom, end of suffering, as if, wow, it's way out there in some imaginary future, if we practice forever. Or it's way back there at the time of the Buddha for those people that lived in caves. But it's not for me now. So I want to talk about what we're doing today that points to the end of dukkha. Yes, there's nibbana. Yes, there's enlightenment. Yes, if we keep practicing, things happen. But let's not wait. Let's look at what what we're doing today. One way that we... Get to experience what I'm going to call a dukkha free zone is when we sit down, we're watching our mind, and we find our mind lost in thought. And our mind is off here in some fantasy land, hallucinating some imaginary future that's just so much better than it is now. (coughs) And we know that. We've, We've done that. And when you see it, you have a choice. You can either say, yeah, yeah, that will yeah, be good. I can hardly wait. Yeah, yeah, what have I got to do to get there? Or you can say, what am I doing this for? This isn't real. So when I was uh, uh, when I was going to university, I, went, I was studying engineering, and this was back in the late 60s, when all we had for mathematical calculations was our own mind in a slide room. We didn't even have handheld calculators. So I did a lot of math. By hand and mind, you know, slide rule, and to, when you do a lot of math and you do it every day, you get you get good at you know numbers. You really can crunch numbers pretty good. Not as good as a handheld calculator, but pretty good. So, a few years after getting out of university, I went on my first retreat. So here I am on my own retreat trying to be mindful, and my mind wanders. My mind wanders into mathematical calculations. So I wake up in a, in a kind of a... My mind is off in this... Let's see, what's the square root of this times the area of that square and, uh, you know, three and four digit numbers multiplying, dividing, and da 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 And I'm like, so, do I need to be doing this now? <laughs> 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 you know, it's like... Hello! <laughs> but our mind will continue to do what it's been trained to do. If you practice mindfulness, you will discover what their habits of mind are. And until you practice mindfulness, you won't know what your habits of mind are. Wow. You know, as soon as you can let go of these fantasy futures, or whatever it is that's totally taking you out of the present, in that moment, you let go, there's a moment of relief. You're not entangled in anything for a brief moment. And you get that experience, you get it. What a relief it is to let go. Of something you didn't even know you were holding on to, just momentarily, before that. You don't know that you're suffering when you're holding on. But as soon as you let go, you get it. It's like, wow, wow. That's that's a benefit. So we've all had that that experience today. When we're able to see that more frequently, and as I spoke about the other night, when we're able to see these tormenting, obsessing states of mind where we're obsessing about you know, fearfully or desire jealousy, or whatever, and we're obsessing, obsessing, obsessing. When you see that, to be aware of it, you step out of it, briefly, momentarily, a little bit, and you get some relief, just from stepping out of it, just from being aware of it, there's some relief. And if you're able to do that with some continuity and some consistency, then you stop (coughs) obsessing. And every moment is just being out of obsessing, just being aware. That quality of not obsessing and being more continuously aware leads to what is called seclusion of mind. Seclusion of mind is the mind that's not entangled in obsessing. The mind is freed from that, secluded from obsessing. And this is a huge relief compared to our normal struggle with obsessing And when we get to experience that unobstructed activity of the mind, the observation of the mind awareness, the mind by itself this isn't this isn't imposed by our own will or intention. the mind by itself is just delighted to be able to function unhindered. And this gives rise to a quality or an experience of uh, what is called in the Buddhist psychology, piti. And piti is something that's like zest or interest or thrill, thrilling or fascination all the way up to and including ecstasy. I mean total blackout ecstasy. That's not suffering. Right? Then no dukkha dukkha in ecstasy. Mm -hmm. Not the last time I checked. And so we get to experience a kind of dukkha free zone Mm -hmm. with the purification of mind, with the mind secluded from obsessing, and as we develop the kind the seclusion of mind up to the point of and including ecstasy. And if you keep (coughs) practicing through ecstasy, meaning ecstasy that's just another thing being known just another object being known ecstasy hey ecstasy wow what's after ecstasy bliss bliss ecstasy is so coarse and so like whoa whoa it's like excuse me it's like full full body orgasm for about two hours it's like okay Whew. gotta chill this out a little bit ah, bliss ha phew, it's that afterglow, you know? It's just kind of like, ah, yeah, that's that's better. Even more subtle, more pleasant. Subtler, but more pleasant. Mm, That's good. But even that is gross compared to equanimity. Equanimity is not indulging in pleasant nor fearing unpleasant. This comes naturally. Now, you don't have to go looking for this. These are spiritual goodies, ecstasy, bliss, Equanimity. These are spiritual goodies that come naturally from the continuity of awareness. You don't have to. You don't have to buy a ticket for them. If you practice awareness, you'll get them. (coughs) Pretty good. You get the point. We're doing the right thing, right? Okay. That's not the end. At at equanimity, we're seeing, you know, uh, experiences. All of our experiences, without being pulled by desire, nor reacting with fear or aversion. The mind just stays balanced. You know, And when the mind is balanced, it really sees what I've mentioned previously, the three characteristics. We see that everything is changing. You really get it. You see this experience, and you know you have this knowledge that arises with the experience. This is <coughs> impermanent. It doesn't last. And so the mind... Doesn't reach for anything that it knows doesn't last. In fact, it's just such a split second of appearance that you can't reach for it. You can't. The mind can't grab it. And if there's no craving and no holding and no desire, there's no dukkha. Right. First noble truth. Second noble truth. Okay. Not only do we see and recognize, realize this impermanence we realize that every experience has the characteristic of dukkha. It is either painful, which is plentiful, or it's unstable, meaning it doesn't provide security, or it's oppressive. And we see when any experience arises, it has this characteristic. If you see this characteristic in every experience why would you reach for what is painful? Why would you hold on to what is oppressive? Why would you want and crave, desire, what is unstable? You don't. And so again, with the insight and the realization of dukkha, the truth of dukkha, you don't reach. And if you don't crave, you don't get any dukkha. Okay. The third characteristic is what's called the anatta characteristic, and it's seeing the conditional nature of things. Things arise due to other things coming together and making them happen. They, ha- they don't have any substance of their own. They're very ephemeral. They're very evanescent. They're just kind of thin. They're like mist. As, as solid as they are. And so when you, when when we are seeing the anatta characteristic of this experience, every experience, this experience arises, and it has this characteristic, this anatta character No no inherent essence characteristic. the mind you know it's like every every experience is like a rainbow it's a colorful appearance due to causes and condition that has no inherent substance. In all of all of our experiences, just a colorful appearance that arises due to causes and conditions and has no inherent experience. Nobody reaches for a, a, a rainbow to put it in a box to send to a friend. So neither will we when the Dukha, when the anatta characteristic is apparent, moment to moment, we won't reach for anything. Okay. Now imagine you're sitting there and <coughs> life is happening. You're experiencing all the normal, usual things that we've been experiencing. And you see this, these characteristics: it's impermanent, it's unstable, it's anatta, it's just made up of other things. It's as ephemeral as uh, the, the colorful appearance of a rainbow. Now, when I was practicing in, in Burma at the monastery, there was a time when I had, there was a time when I had really good equanimity, and it was so profound and so extraordinary. It was, it was like unbelievable in the sense that. The, the body, the substance of the body was only as thick and as solid as mist. Really. And it was as light, lighter than a feather. Really. It was so insubstantial. The experience of the body was so insubstantial. I would have to look at myself to make sure I had my robes on because I couldn't feel them. And when I would walk on the, on the, you know, to the meditation hall, to the dining room, I would have to be really careful to make sure that I was touching the ground. It's not that I was floating or I wasn't levitating or anything like that, but you don't feel it. The, the, the substance of the foot touching the substance of the earth is like mist blowing against a tree. So I went to my teacher and I said, wow, this is, this is pretty different. I said, "Brother, well, body is like this, and this is what it's like." And he said, "Now you know what it's like when you just came out of the womb before you were identified with the body." Mm-hmm. Maybe, but anyway, when the mind has that quality of lightness and transparency, and you know things are as em- ephemeral or as evanescent as that, it's very easy not to hang on to anything. I mean, what are you going hang on to? And when you don't hang on, there's one more experience of the Dukkha-free zone when the mind falls into the unconditioned. The unconditioned is not made up of anything. There's no conditions that give rise to it. It's not born, it doesn't die. But it is a reality that can be realized through practice. And it is said that this is the end of suffering. No craving, no no substance to it. It has no size, shape, color, texture, no endurance, no no experience that can be it's ineffable. You can't talk about it. There's no words to describe it. And yet it is a reality that can be recognized. This is what the Buddha is pointing to with the Third Noble Truth. There's an end to dukkha. And we can realize it what we're doing here is just that. Developing the path to the realization for the end of dukkha. This is the fourth noble truth. The fourth noble truth, well, the third noble truth is to be realized by each one of us. Nobody can do it for you. You can't get it in the mail. No teacher can bestow it on you. You must realize it through your own efforts. And the, the efforts is... The fourth noble truth, which is <clears throat> the path to the end of suffering. And that's the noble full path that each one of us can, be, can develop. And the path of development is just what we're doing here. The practice of precepts purifies speech and behavior, overcoming transgressive defilements that allows us to live in harmony. The development of mindfulness purifies the mind, allowing us to experience seclusion of mind, secluded from obsessing, and the practice of vipassana purifies our understanding so that we see these three characteristics. We're no longer confused about these three characteristics, and then we can access the unconditioned. So, all of our efforts here today, to be aware, to recognize our experience, to strike a balance with that, is fulfilling the noble eightfold path. And when we develop the noble eightfold path in that way, we're sure to reach the end of suffering by abandoning the craving, the holding on, the desire, and then the truth of dukkha or dukkha will be will come to an end. This is what we're doing. It's not so far from. It's just exactly what the Buddha prescribed for for realizing what he realized: the end of suffering. <clears throat> the Buddha said of the end of suffering he said it is deep it is hard to see it is hard to understand it. it is peaceful it is sublime it is beyond mere reasoning you can't you can't think about it it is subtle but it is intelligible to the wise we use words like peace contentment the sublime to point to this reality it's not the reality nirvana is the reality But the words that we can have some sense of is peace. That's the characteristic of the unconditioned. This is our work. This is our journey. This is what we're doing here. This is what the Buddha taught. If you think about it, how could we do anything better, more effective, more purposeful than what we've done today? To the extent that we understand our own suffering, we understand the cause of our suffering, we understand the end of suffering a little bit, because because, by developing these paths, these practices that we've been practicing, to the extent that we know that, we can be a benefactor to others. We don't have to be a bother. We don't have to be a burden. And in this way, all of our actions today is uh, an act of compassion, both for ourselves and for others that we share life with. It's a gift. This practice is a gift, an act of generosity, because we don't keep the benefit for ourselves. Yeah, we can get the benefit at the end of suffering, and we offer that through our very behavior, the way we live in the world, is a gift to others. So let's sit and let these words settle into the heart.